Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Invite you to turn uh, in a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. I did not double check what page it is. I think it's right around 598 in that Bible. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. Our text that we're going to look at this morning are the verses 11 through 16 of chapter, uh, verses 2 through 16 of chapter 11 in uh, 1 Corinthians. And of this text, one commentator said, That this text has some features that make it one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. Another commentator said, this passage is full of notorious exegetical difficulties. If you don't know what that means, you don't want to know what that means. (laughs) Let me tell you, after studying this passage. Yet another commentator (laughs) The complexities of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 2 through 16 continue to vex modern interpreters. And its comments about women rile many modern readers. Now, it's not every day you read the word rile in a commentary. And I'm not sure whether uh, the the ladies or all of us should be ready to be riled uh, this morning by God's word. Uh, But it... This is a passage that's a difficult passage, and I think we have to recognize that. And it's difficult for uh, several different reasons. Some of them have to do with the passage itself and some of the, um, the wording in it and all of that, but a lot of it have to do with, with both the situation there in 1 Corinthians to which Paul was writing and the situation here today, 21st century uh, America, Western world. And so we need to recognize some of those things up front, but we also need to understand that this is why it is healthy for churches to to preach through and teach through entire books of the Bible exegetically, expositorily. Uh, To to not just choose, hey, what should we talk about this week and what shall we hear from God next week, but let's take a book of the Bible and let's go all the way through it and, and do our best to cover everything that's there because then we can't avoid the things that are challenging. We can't avoid the things that are difficulty, difficult because I know I would rather do that as a preacher. I would just as soon leave the hard passages to somebody else and stick with the easy ones. But we want to hear the full counsel of God's word. The Apostle Paul, when he was speaking to the Ephesians elders, said, you know what, I, I'm, I've, my conscience is clear because I sought to give you the full conscience, the full um, the full counsel of God's word. I, I, didn't, I didn't leave anything out. I addressed the easy things and I addressed the hard things. And I appreciate what the reformer Martin Luther said about preaching through scripture. He said, if I, Luther speaking as a preacher, if I preach the holy scriptures with all my might, but remain silent on the one issue that the world is attacking, then I failed to preach the word of God. And I think you're going to understand quickly as we start to talk about the role of men and women, the lines of authority and headship in marriage and in the church, that we're addressing issues that that our culture is wrestling with, and where believers who want to follow Scripture are going to seem to be walking out of step with our culture, and we need to be okay with that. We need to trust that God's word is true and everything in it is good and good for us. Amen? Amen. And so let's just recognize a few things up front as we step into this passage uh, together uh, today. First, let's recognize that uh, the situation that was going on in the city of Corinth uh, with the believers there, Paul was addressing a particular group. Some people have read this passage and, and read what Paul seems to be saying about women and have been very offended. Is, is Paul a woman hater? Uh, he seems to be picking on the women here. Well, he is singling out a particular group of the women in that church who were out of line and out of step with the gospel. And so, yes, he is... Per- picking on a particular group of women, wives in particular, in this church. 
in the very same way he picked on, or he singled, I shouldn't say picked on, he singled out the knowers who were, who were all into their knowledge and misusing it. In the same way he singled out the, the groupies who were like, I'm into Apollos, I'm into Paul, I'm into Cephas. In the same way that he's going to single out the uh, power brokers in the rest of this chapter. That's, that's the nature of this very book that Paul is saying to this church, hey, here's some issues with this group and here's some issues with that group and here's how these folks need to get in line with the gospel. And so we need to understand that, that Paul isn't singling out uh, all women or he's not singling out uh, women in exclusion of men. There's a particular situation with and I would say not just the women in the city of Corinth, but wives. And you're going to notice that depending on what translation of the Bible you have, uh, the Greek word for woman and wife is the same. Uh, the Greek word for man and husband are the same. And so I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, and they made some interpretive decisions about where they understand the word to be translated wife or woman, husband or man. And, and I am in agreement with what they've done, and so I, I, I'm going to read it as such. But you need to, need to understand that, and that'll make more sense as we get into, get into the message itself. I think another thing we have to understand about the setting where Paul is writing, it's, it's the first century, almost 2,000 years ago, Greco-Roman world. Uh, their uh, expectations in terms of, of clothing and in terms of hairstyle, as you would imagine, were very different than ours. And in particular, we're going to run into this issue of the expectation that a married woman would wear something on her head to indicate that she was married and that she was gladly under the servant authority of her husband. Those are some things we need to understand uh, about them. And I think some things we need to understand about ourselves and about the context uh, that we live in, that this, this passage talks about the lines of authority and submission, the lines of leadership, and then the, the glad affirming of leadership. And honestly, in our, in our culture, we have what I would call a dysfunctional or even schizophrenic understanding of authority. Uh, on the one hand, we are revolutionaries and rebels. Our country exists because we threw off the shackles of authority. And we have this sort of narrative in our culture of, of, of throwing off traditional authority and, and breaking free of the bonds. That's a, that's a storyline in our, in our culture. At the same time, we all still live and breathe and work and function in our families and in our communities under all kinds of different types of authority, do we not? There are lines of authority in our families. Uh, there are lines of authority in, in the municipal world. Uh, there are lines, there are, there are parent and child authority lines. Uh, there, there, are, there are teacher and student authority lines. I, I can't help thinking about this this morning on, on the way in, thinking about authority and, and submission or, or putting ourselves under authority. And even that word submission in, in our English language, uh, it doesn't immediately communicate glad affirmation of authority, does it? Submission almost sounds like you're being made to submit. And that's certainly not the way the Bible speaks about submission. But I couldn't help but thinking we were at uh, our uh, oldest son's uh, college baseball game yesterday. And in a baseball game, there are lines of authority. They're called the umpires. And everybody recognizes them, and everybody's there voluntarily, the players and the coaches, under the authority of the umpires. Uh, you know, nobody's making them play this game. They're actually paying the umpires to be the authority. Well, let me tell you, the authority took a beating yesterday. From both sides, both fans, all the coaches, all the players, nobody was happy with them. One guy was offered to give the umpire his glass eye. I thought that was creative. So I would, I would have characterized it as brutal yet creative uh, in terms of the grief that the umpires took. But there was no getting around it. We have, there, there is authority and there are lines of, of submission and affirming that authority all around us, and we function like that in our homes and in our community and in our schools and in our workplaces every single day. 
And so we're gonna, we need to recognize that authority is God-given and it is, it is to be used for the glory of God, and it's a good thing for us when it is. And then finally, let's recognize some things about each one of us. First of all, that we're finite. None of us sees with perfect clarity. None of us understands with perfect um, understanding. And we're fallen. There is a deceitfulness in our hearts. We are, we are rebels by nature, but by God's grace, He overcomes that. And we need to submit ourselves to Him and to His Word this morning. So enough with the preliminaries. Let us, let's get into this um, passage. And let me ask for God's blessing as we do. God, we ask for your help this morning. We recognize that you are, you are the king, you are the ruler of the universe, that you made it, and that you sit, as it were, enthroned above us, where, you, where your rule is conducted with, with absolute goodness, with 100% wisdom. And Lord, we thank you for communicating your will and your ways to us through your word. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to be submissive to it this morning. And Lord, as we think about especially what it means to be created in your image as women and as men, Lord, we pray that you'd give us the understanding and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would provide us with the grace and the desire to embrace how you have created us. And Lord, you give us the ability to, to live together in a way that glorifies you as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read our text, but I want to begin in chapter 10 at verse 31 this morning. This is God's word. So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair, to, cu to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image of gl and glory of God, but woman is in the image and glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man... So man is now born of woman, but all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman, I'm sorry, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for her covering. For if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's holy word. We thank him for it and we ask him for help through his Holy Spirit this morning. I'm going to walk through the text in five uh, movements. This is our roadmap this morning. I have borrowed the, the basic 
uh, roadmap here from my friend and fellow pastor, uh, David Sunday, with a little bit of adjustment. But we're going to start with the definition of the principle that Paul lays down here. Talk about the violation and the, the problem that was going on in the city of Corinth with the believers there. Then Paul's going to give us the foundation. He's going to ground the principle, clarify it, and then we're going to talk about one more implication of the principle. Now, we're moving into another sort of major section of 1 Corinthians here, beginning in chapter 11 at verse 2 and going all the way to the end of verse 14. And if I had chapter 14, verse 40, and if I had to give sort of a title to that section, uh, it would be disunity and disorder in gathered worship. The context for Paul's comments here about head coverings for women and lines of authority and submission all have to do with what's happening in their gathered worship. And there's going to be other things he's going to talk about in terms of the use of gifts and in terms of the Lord's Supper as you look down the next few chapters. And it all has to do with disunity, disharmony. I really appreciated what um, the, the testimonies from Gracie and Zach communicated about the, being part of the family of God and the connection that we have uh, together with one another. And the fact that we have the youth leading us this morning to demonstrate visibly that we are one body. See, that was the challenge that was going on in Corinth. And I think maybe you've been noticing that theme, especially over the last few weeks with all this stuff about whether you could eat meat sacrificed to idols or be in temples and all of that, that what I do individually as a believer isn't just about me and Jesus. It affects all of us together as the body of Christ, as the family of believers. And so how you follow Jesus individually has implications for how we follow Jesus together as a body. Being a Christian is inescapably corporate. And you notice in verse 2 here of chapter 11 that Paul begins by commending them. Uh, they, they're, they're keeping their traditions that have been handed down. Uh, this, these traditions would not have been just sort of random traditionalism, but this is a, these are the traditions of the teaching, the body of teaching, from the, probably from the Old Testament. Both truth about God and practice as the body of Christ. It's uh, similar to when in the book of Jude, Jude writes about our common salvation, contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And Paul says, you're doing, overall, you're doing a pretty good job with that. But then that little three-letter word, but. <laughs> but you need to understand something here. There is a point where you've gone astray, and it has to do with lines of authority and submission of leadership and affirming leadership in the body of Christ. Basically, here's what Paul says. Here is the principle that he wants to lay down for them. He uses this term, head. He's talking about physical heads and head coverings, uh, but he's also talking about a head in terms of, of, of leadership. And that each one of us have a head. We, each one of us has someone that we're responsible to, under whose authority uh, we are to thrive. And so the principle is that everyone is under authority. Everyone has a head, metaphorically speaking. Willing submission to one's head ought to be evident in the life of each follower of Jesus. We're all under authority. In this particular case, Paul is singling out the fact there are some wives, some women in the church at Corinth who are, are not living by this principle. The principle begins, Paul says, with understanding uh, that, that God is the head of every man. Now, God, Paul isn't saying that God isn't the head of women as well, but he he's, he's wants us, them to understand, listen, your husbands are under authority and you're under the authority of your husbands. But even Christ is under authority. Christ is under the authority of God the Father. And he uses this term, head. Who is your head? Now, one of the points of controversy and um, difference on this passage is some look at that term, everyone has a head, and they see it not as sort of the person in leadership in one's life, but rather that it means source. And um, just want us to understand why I don't think that's a, a good understanding of this word. For, 
For instance, it wouldn't make sense applying it to Jesus and saying uh, that God is the source of Christ. Uh, that doesn't make sense because that would seem to indicate that, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was not eternally existent. Uh, that, that God was, but somehow God produced Jesus. But more than this, this idea of, of Christ being the head and, and the church being the body is something that Paul continues to develop as he writes. For instance, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says that, that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So there's this, this metaphor that Paul is developing of Christ being the head, the body of Christ, the, the we use that so often, it's hard, it's hard to explain it, but that we together are the body of Christ. Paul goes on in Ephesians uh, to develop the same thing. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is our head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, that's the believers, is joined and held together. And then Paul beautifully uses this metaphor that he has created to talk about the relationship between husbands and wives in chapter 5 of Ephesians. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of his church, his body, and is himself her Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the, the understanding of the picture is, I think, very clear. And Paul is using that here. And he's going to continue to use it in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to get to chapter 12 where Paul talks about the different gifts in the body, that each of us are a gift to the body. But Christ is the head of the body. And so Paul's aim here, he says, I want you to understand something. Your thinking needs to change. How you see authority and submission needs to be adjusted. Authority and submission is an important theme throughout the Bible. Uh, we, we see it, um, again, throughout the Bible. We, and we, yet we tend to see the relationship between authority and submission, and often in our culture we see it as one of value. If you're the person in authority, the head, that must mean you are of superior value to the person under your authority. And that certainly isn't true. The example that Paul gives of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, being under the authority of God the Father, uh, certainly shows that it's not a matter of importance and less importance when talking about authority and submission. Having authority does not imply superiority, and being under one's leadership does not imply inferiority. In a perfect world, as God intended it, there would be uh, no distinction that would give us that impression. And yet we live in a world where authority is often abused, and we live in a world where those in authority often assume they're there because they're better than the people over whom they exercise authority. That's the world's understanding oftentimes. That is a sinful understanding of authority. That is a fallen understanding of authority. But we need to look at God's Word and understand how He shows us authority and submission and how we're to exercise it to glorify Him the way that He does, the way that Christ, as the leader of His church, of us, laid down His life for us. And so authority and submission is not a bad thing. It's, it's true in the Trinity that the Father, that the Son and the Spirit submit to the Father. Uh, it's, that predates even creation. And so Paul places the authority of a husband and wife in their relationship right in the middle of God being the authority over all men and all people. If you look how he, the ordering of it, that's what he began with. And of the Father being an authority over the son. And in between that, he reminds the wives of the congregation, you are under the authority of your husband. And so this first section, I think, functions as a reminder, not just to those who are under authority, but to those who are exercising authority. Hey, don't get a big head because you've 
been given the position of being the head in some context, whether it's in your home, whether it's at the workplace or wherever it might be. It's a corrective that I think we all need to hear because probably almost all of us exercise authority in some realm or some sphere. Everyone is under authority. Willing submission to one's head ought to be evident in the lives of Jesus' disciples. Well, that's the way it ought to be, but what's happening in the church in Corinth is something very different. Here's the violation of the principle. It's happening when they're together, gathered, praying and prophesying. Um, this can sort of compare that to this gathering here, but since they met in homes, uh, their worship gathering might have been somewhere halfway between here and a home group. But notice that the men and the women are praying and prophesying together. Now, the praying part, I think we probably get. The prophesying part, what exactly is that? We're going to talk about that more when we look at the gifts of the Spirit in chapters 12 and 14, but um, let me maybe describe a little bit of what prophecy might be here. Uh, it's not easy to describe, but I don't think it's preaching. Later in chapter 14, Paul says uh, women are not to uh, speak out in the church gathering. He obviously doesn't mean they're not supposed to speak out at all because he's talking about the proper way of speaking here. And Paul says also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that, that women are not permitted to be the authoritative teacher in a gathering. So I don't think he's talking about preaching here. He's not talking about prophecy in the way of the Old Testament, that is, new revelation from the Lord that says, thus says the Lord, that's on par with the words of Scripture. This isn't so much foretelling the future as it is foretelling God's truth that's, truth that's consistent with God's Word. It's speech that is Spirit-led and Spirit-empowered. It's an insightful speaking of biblical truth that is poignant to a particular moment. Prophecy, I think, is hard to describe, but it's something that we've experienced when a, when a brother or a sister in Christ communicates a word of encouragement that is not new revelation, but consistent with God's word, and it's right for the moment. And, and as time goes on, you, you see how, how that is applied to your life. So that's happening. And notice both the men and the women are participating in that when they're in gathered worship. That the women are, were absolutely free to participate in this way and to have a significant uh, peace in the gathered worship of their church. But there was a cultural expectation across their culture that a woman would wear some kind of something on her head. Now, we don't know what it was. It probably wasn't a veil. Um, might have been like a prayer shawl. Uh, but something on her head that would show that she's a married woman and that she embraces the leadership of her husband. You know, perhaps we could compare it to wearing a wedding band in our culture or sitting with your spouse in a gathered worship service, but it communicated to everyone, we're married, and it, for her it communicated, I, I re respect the, the leadership of my husband. And notice that the specifics of what that looked like were culturally bound for that time, but the principle is universal. And there was a cultural expectation for the, the men as well that their head would be uncovered. Now, the violation was that some of the women in the church, in defiance of their husband's authority, were willfully worshiping, shall we say, lidless. No covering. Notice that Paul said it was willful. If they will not, verse 6. It wasn't a matter of, oh, shucks, I left my hat at home this week. Um, it wasn't a matter of, oh, I didn't know it. This was an expectation that was true across their culture. And probably the motive for these women is that it was showing that they were extra spiritual. You know, one day we're going to be, we, we know Jesus, one day uh, we're going to be like the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage, so why not start practicing that right now? And Paul says, it's shameful. It's a disgrace. You are not honoring your, your head, the authority in your life. And he says, you might as well go around town with a shaved head, which I think 
Most women would not prefer to wear their hair that way. That would be an embarrassment. Uh, to, 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 you would feel exposed to have all your hair uh, cut off against your will. And Paul says, you might as well do that. You might as well, you're exposing yourself with the lack of whole head covering thing. Uh, you might as well be walking around bald. And so the bottom line here is that a wife ought not to purposely carry herself in a manner that communicates defiance to her husband, that communicates a lack of unity, a lack of oneness. And so I think the question is for wives. Wives, how do you feel about being under the authority of your husband? Do your words and your attitudes, your demeanor, communicate a defiant spirit regarding his leadership or one that affirms it? And Paul says that if as a wife, God's Word says that if as a wife, uh, there is a demeanor or an attitude that says, um, I'm, I'm throwing off my husband's leadership, then, then you're exposing yourself. And it's disgraceful. And I think it's a word to all of us under all of the various authority that we have functioned, whether that's uh, in the home as parents and children uh, whether that's in the community, in the workplace, how do each of us feel about being under the authority that God has placed in our lives? Do our words and our attitudes communicate a defiant spirit about leadership? It might even apply to how we treat umpires at baseball games. This is serious stuff, right? How do we know Paul isn't just talking to a specific, to a specific time and place in history. How do we know that this applies to us today? Well, we know it from the way that Paul grounds the principle, the foundation of the principle. The answer is found in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Paul goes to creation. Neither, man, neither was man created for woman or woman for man. How men and women, how husbands and wives relate to one another is grounded in the way that God designed us and the way that God created us as husbands and as wives, as men and as women. Paul says, well, Eve was created for Adam, verse 9, as his helpmate, Genesis chapter 2. Eve was uniquely formed. Eve was uh, from Adam. Adam was created first. And Paul's saying the order tells us something about how we relate. It doesn't tell us anything about the value of, of men versus women or women versus men, but it does tell us something about how we relate to one another. This was God's design, and we tampered with God's design to our own detriment. You know, you can, you can pound in a nail with the back end of a pistol, but it's, it's literally going to backfire on you. <laughs> when we mess with God's design, we do so to our own detriment. And so Paul says, uh, be careful. Verse 7, Paul says, we need to be careful with verse 7 to, to not make Paul say what he's not saying. Paul says that, Men are in the image and glory of, of God. He's not saying that women aren't in the image and glory of God. But he's saying that in addition, a woman or a wife is the glory of her husband, is the glory of her man. She is the crown on his head. He may be the head, but she has the top spot. She is to be, to be the crown on top of her husband's head. She reflects his leadership. And so there's a word there to husbands. Husbands, if your wife is not radiant, that's saying something about your leadership of her. And it says to the wife, if you purposely carry yourself in a manner that communicates, again, defiance to your husband, in this case, they weren't worshiping with the culturally expected head covering, the result is, is a lack of unity. It's a lack of oneness. Therefore, verse 10, Paul says, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. 
See, the head covering in this case, in their culture, would tell the world that she's embracing her husband's leadership. But it also may say something about her own authority. Notice that little part in verse 10, she's to do this because of the angels. What in the world does that mean? Well, nobody's exactly sure what it means because of the angels. Uh, It could be referring to Job chapter 38 where uh, the Word of God talks about the angels being present when God was creating the earth. And Paul is referring here to creation, so, so there's angels in that context. But in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul also said something to believers about the angels. He told us that we will judge the angels. That believers will judge the angels, all of us, men and women. And so Paul could be saying to the wise, listen, you're, one day you're going to be judging the angels. You're going to be the supreme court judging the angels. Start acting like it now. You're going to be given great authority one day when Jesus returns. Start now. And so for us, what symbol could a wife wear in our culture to display that she affirms and appreciates the leadership of her husband, that they're a team? Certainly wearing a wedding ring. Certainly in our culture, taking your husband's last name. But it's probably not so much something external the way we work in our culture. It's probably much more a manner of an inner disposition, of the words and the attitudes that she displays that says to the world that she is glad for her husband's leadership that will make her his crown. Paul goes on to clarify the principle in verses 11 and 12. Look at verses 11 and 12. They begin with the word, nevertheless, even so. In other words, let's keep this in balance. Don't don't assume one thing because of what I've said. Because of what I've said, don't don't assume that, that there's a level of value placed on one gender over the other or the the husband over the wife. Yes, Paul says in verse 11, woman was made from man, but now all men are born of a woman. And besides that, all of this is from God. All of this was God's idea. And so it's not about independence. It's about interdependence. This is about God's design for us. What brings God honor? What brings God glory? Well, it's for a wife to honor her head, her husband, by relating as she was designed, as his complement, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-T. And for her, for him to function as he was designed, the husband as her complement. If you remember the story of creation in Genesis chapter 2, God created Eve from the side of Adam because he said there was something that wasn't good in the universe. The first thing that wasn't good in creation was that the man was alone. He was by himself and he needed a helper fit for him. He needed a helper. Men, that means we need help. Husbands, that means we need help. That a wife was created to help her husband fulfill God's purpose for him to help him do something he would not be able to accomplish his mission for God on his own. And so the text says that God created a helpmate fit for Adam. Someone who was like him, but not like him. And if you remember, Adam really appreciated it. He wrote the first love song. At last, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's like me. She's human. And yet she's not like me. I'm not going to call her man. I'm going to call her woman. I appreciate the commentary of the biblical scholar Rocky Balboa on this. When asked why he loved his beloved Adrian so much, remember Pauly, his brother-in-law, asked him this? What do you see in my sister, Rock? Well, he says, she's got gaps. I got gaps. Together, we ain't got no gaps. (laughs) 
Friends, that is great theology. That is Genesis chapter 2, isn't it? God made men and women to complement one another. He certainly made husbands and wives to complement one another. But he made us together as the body of Christ, men and women, to complement one another. To fill in one another's gaps. We need one another. There is an interdependence in the body of Christ. And and being believers is inescapably communal. And our flourishing as human beings is a result of men and women, husbands and wives, living according to their maker's design. It's a result of celebrating and cultivating our common humanity. We're all created equally in God's image, but also celebrating and cultivating our differences. Women honoring God, honoring their creator, reflecting his image as women in a feminine way. Men honoring their God, honoring their creator as men in a masculine way, as God has defined masculinity and femininity. And so I want to close with one more implication of this reality. The principle is that everyone is under authority, everyone has a head. Willing submission to one's head ought to be evident in the life of every individual believer, in every believing home, in every local body of Christ. Paul says all things are from God in verse 12. He, believers, don't, don't, don't forget believers, he is the head over all of us, men and women. And Paul says in verse 13, you guys judge for yourselves. I've got confidence, he says, that you can figure this out. God has given you some clues. In God's design, there is a distinction between male and female, and he, he, he delineates that in verse 14. He says, doesn't nature itself teach you something about the difference between men and women, between masculinity and femininity? There is something about our our physical makeup that tells us, and the psychology that goes with it, that tells us undeniably there's a difference between men and women. There's a distinction that it's God's design. Paul says, doesn't nature teach you this? And And whose voice is speaking through nature? God's voice. And the lesson he's teaching is, I designed you this way, and I didn't make a mistake when I did that. Friend, our God, good God gave you either a male body or a female body for his glory and for your good. And so the implication is that God's distinctive design for femininity and masculinity is good And it's for our good. And so in order to glorify God, we ought to relate to our world. We ought to relate to one another. Women as women. Men as men. Not simply as generic, interchangeable human beings. Now, here's where it gets interesting. As if it weren't already. Universally, across our culture, and Paul connects it here, There are two key ways that gender is expressed or communicated externally. Through our hairstyles and through our clothing. So this is the part where I tell you, the back, you can pick up a booklet that says how you should dress and how you should wear your hair. No, that's not it. (laughs) Not even close. But Paul's point here. And I think this is, this is something we need to consider and take to heart, is to dress or to wear our hair in such a way that blurs the distinction dishonors our head. And it dishonors us individually the way God is created. Now, does that mean that, that for instance, women ought not to have short hairstyles? Well, obviously, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of different hairstyles, and I am so on thin ice even talking about women's hairstyles right now. (laughs) But I think there's a way that a woman can have a short hairstyle that looks very feminine. But there also could be a way where she wears her hair that makes her, that blurs the line, 
and where there isn't a distinction. And I think that's where this uh, principle needs to be carefully applied. Does it mean that men can't have long hair? Well, 50 years ago, it was real easy, right? Men didn't, didn't have long hair. But if you go back in history where there were times when men had longer hair, there were times when men had shorter hair, and now it just seems like hairstyles all over the place. The other day, I was uh, picking up one of my kids from um, an activity where there were a lot of teenagers of various ages walking around, and a, one kid walked past me, and I assumed that that kid was, was female. As I watched a little longer, going past me, I, I discovered it was, a young, it was actually a young man. And, and my point in saying that is, there's some people who can pull it off, and there's some people who can't. So if you're going to have longer hair, uh, make sure you can pull it off. <laughs> make sure you look masculine. Ryan, you look masculine. I love, I love, your, I love your hair. He's up here, I'm like, oh, if I only if I could have hair like that. So. But does that make sense? There, there's, there, there's, a, there's a way to... There's a way to honor God with our dress and with our hair and all of that that makes it clear we're honoring masculinity as men, femininity as women. And so therefore, you and I will flourish when we embrace God's design for each of us. And we will flourish uh, together in that way. Now, I just, I want to close thinking through this whole, and I'm, I'm opening up a, a can of worms here because we live in a time when, when gender and when blurring the line between gender is, is such a major topic and issue. And it, it's sort of an issue out there that we can see in our world and we kind of look at, uh, but it's also an issue that's very personal for many people, for many people who struggle with their gender, gender identity for people who know people or who have family members who struggle with their gender identity. And it's beyond the scope of this message to, to get into that very deeply. But I would, I would just encourage you that the Bible talks to these issues. And as believers, we need to have confidence in what God's Word says. And our confidence comes from Christ. Our confidence comes from the redeeming story of the gospel. And so I just want to close this morning by taking the issue of gender and walking it through the gospel. Walking it through the gospel from the chapter 1, creation, chapter 2, fall, chapter 3, redemption in Christ, chapter 4, the restoration of all things. You see, gender was God's idea in the beginning. He created humanity in his image, and he created us male and female in order to glorify him. And he created us in such a way that we, we, we complement one another. We fill in one another's gaps. And in the beginning with Adam and Eve, that worked so well and so perfectly, didn't it? So much so that, that they could be unclothed and be unashamed. They could be completely exposed in front of one another honoring God as woman, honoring God as man. That is the way it ought to be. But the way it is, is that our world has fallen, that sin has entered in, that we've rebelled in our hearts against God, and that affects every aspect of who we are, including how we see ourselves as, as male or as female. And so every part of our being is disordered, including gender. But Jesus came, and Jesus honored God in the gender he was created perfectly. He lived in, in, in relationship and in communion with his heavenly Father, submitting to his Father's will. And Jesus says, I was sent. I lived under, I lived under my Father's authority, and, and I was sent, and I willingly did what he called me to do, which was lay down my life to die in the place of sinful people 
and to die for all their sin and to die for all their brokenness, which includes gender dystopia and all kinds of issues with our sexuality. Jesus died in our place for that, to redeem us, to make us clean, and to restore us. And he's beginning to restore all of those who are trusting in him as the Holy Spirit puts us back together more and more into the image of Christ as we were created to reflect God's glory. And one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to restore all things. And we won't struggle with these things anymore. And always and forever, each of us will be embracing our gender and glorifying God as men and as women. Even as we are in perfect communion as the bride of Christ with our head, Jesus. And friends, we look forward to that, don't we? Amen. May it be so and may we live as those who know it's so and trust that it's so. Let me pray. God, there's so much here that I feel like I haven't hardly scratched the surface on, and yet there's probably more here than that most of us can, can absorb in one setting. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just um, clear away the, the rubble and the debris, and you would focus our minds and our hearts on what you want to teach us today. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are the head of your church and that all of us are, are your uh, glad bride looking forward to your return. In the meantime, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd help us to honor God as we were created, as men or as women. Lord, help us as we raise our kids uh, to help them to embrace who you have created them to be. And Lord, I pray for those who struggle with, um, with their gender identity. Lord, I pray that there would be real healing for them through your word, that your word sanctifies and washes us clean. And Father, that as we understand your will and your way and your design for us through your word, and as we embrace it, we find healing and we find wholeness. And all of us need that. And Lord, we're, we're thankful that you provide that for us through Jesus and through him alone. We pray this in his name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R.